Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. Thank you for listening to the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform, as well as share it with your colleagues. If you're looking for more content, check out or follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn and Facebook for some different types of content and check out robsreliability.com as well. If you're looking for a short daily audio tip, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Tip of the Day on your favorite podcast platform. As well, it's also available on Amazon Alexa as a flash briefing. So check that out. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, questions you want answered, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, just send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now let's get rolling. All right. Hey, guys. I'm here with Sonia Mathura. She's back again. Sonia, how are you doing? Hi, Rob. I'm good. I'm fine. I'm glad to be back. <laughs> yeah, thanks for coming back on. Not a problem at all. I am very glad to be here. So recently you posted on LinkedIn and you said it was your one year anniversary of founding Strategic Reliability Solutions. First off, congratulations. Thank you so much. So how, how has business been your first year? Wow, business has been actually very exciting because I've, I've gotten to work on a lot of different projects that just, you know, brought me out more into what I need to do. And it's really expanding, strategic, and I love the direction that it's been heading in so far. So really, really good things to be first year. I'm so excited. <laughs> and I know that we'll have a lot more years to come. No, that's that's awesome. Then the other thing I wanted to ask you about it was, since you've gone through year one, what do you have coming? What's your plan going forward? Oh, we have so many plans for year two. <laughs> year two is gonna be awesome, very awesome. We have a lot of um, partnerships that we're going off into, so we're expanding the business a bit. And we're opening up the target market that we're looking at. And our aim is really to get Trinidad on track, especially our guys in Trinidad, make sure that they are ready for reliability and ready to take a, a strong stand with reliability. So that's our aim for yet too. <laughs> awesome. Oh, definitely. <laughs> No, that's a great aim. And yeah, obviously let me know if I can help you with anything. That's uh, so you, and also one thing I wanted to t touch on was you guys had an RCA course, maybe it was a couple of weeks ago. How did that go? Yeah. Oh my gosh. It was great. It was really good. Um, we had an RCA and a BFA. Uh, this was the first time that we actually had a basic failure analysis course in Trinidad with the Reliability Center Incorporated team. And uh, the participants were extremely impressed. They were excited. 
they wanted to go back to their plans and start doing basic failure analysis. And our RCA uh, participants, they got super excited while just using the ProArc software and realizing how much of the methodology applies to what they have to do. And it was just very interesting to see all of that come together and, you know, to have those light bulbs clicking off in the classroom. It was it was really a great experience to have that. <laughs> yeah, and I really, like, I got the walkthrough on the ProAct software as well, and I'm really impressed by it. Mm. Oh, yeah, definitely. Those guys have done their, they've done their homework. <laughs> Awesome. So let me put you on the spot here and and ask you the question, what's the difference between basic failure analysis and root cause analysis? Oh, that's not on the spot. I've been answering that question for quite some time. (laughs) So your basic failure analysis is actually for your guys on the ground that have a failure. They need to deal with it right away and they need to get that failure assessed and move on to the next line of business. And that is, uh, I would say it is a quick version of an RCA, so they don't have to go into as much depth as a root cause analysis. So your basic failure analysis shouldn't take you longer than a day, or definitely less than a day, while your root cause analysis would require more detail and you have to get up to the executive level, um, get in all your pricing points, all your numbers in, all your reports. It could take a lot longer than your basic failure analysis. So that's major difference. Perfect. So I wanted to have you back on because I wanted to kind of nerd out with with lubrication. I know it's something that's that, fine, I mean, me. I spend... Them... <laughs> Sorry? That's fine by me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's something I spend a lot of time on, and I know that you spend a lot of time on as well. So it'll be fun to kind of chop it up. Definitely. So the first thing I wanted to I wanted to ask you was, when you go to a plant and you're looking at their lubrication program, what are some of the things that you're looking at to kind of determine whether, like, what level they're at? Uh, the first thing I would have to do with that is to make sure that I do a walk around of their plant or their area. Because sometimes what you see on paper or what they tell you may not be what is actually happening. So definitely I like to get uh, hands on, do a walk around the plants. Uh, just look at the equipment, how it's being maintained. If I see leaks or if I see grease oozing out all over the place, I know we have some issues. So I like to do a walk around first and then possibly talk to the persons responsible for lubrication, more than likely the guys in stores, because that's where it starts actually. (laughs) And find out where they're at, how do they actually distribute lubricants, and then talk to the persons that actually do the maintenance. And from that, sort of put together where they're at and find out if they actually have procedures in place, do they know 
how to use a grease gun because they're believe it or not there are people that don't know how to use one and how to use it properly and uh, find out their storage practices so based on that uh, then I can possibly take them to a different level or the level that I would want them to be at, or rather level they should be at. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I agree a hundred percent. I mean, the walkthrough to me is the first, the biggest kind of most important thing. Um, the next thing I, I always like to do is, well, I guess it's kind of part, part of your walkthrough, but absolutely go and see where they're storing the lubricants. Definitely. And yeah, I mean, the grease gun, just that kind of brings up a point to me is uh, a lot of people, well, the one of the first um, plants I went to, I, I was having a little talk with one of their like lubrication guys, one of their maintenance guys. And he was around, it was a really young guy, maybe, maybe 18 years old. And I asked him, I was like, well, how do you know that you've put enough, enough grease? And he's, he, his, he looks at me like I was crazy. And he goes, well, when it starts leaking out. Oh, my gosh, no. <laughs> and I, I kind of looked at him and I was like, well, you know, there's supposed to be seals. And, and he's like, well, no, not here. You know, the seals, there's there's maybe 10% of the equipment that has seals anymore. Everything else, we've blown it out years ago. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely, definitely blown them out. <laughs> so it's just a funny thing that, you know, like the education side is so important and it's really interesting. And, and I saw a video at uh, at IMC a few years ago um, and the guy did a thermography uh, video, which is about maybe a minute long. And it, it's between three, three factory fill bearings. They're like little bearings. They're maybe, I don't know, maybe a couple inches uh, in diameter. And he runs the video for about a minute and the hugely contaminated bearing, which he washed out and, and like swept up the shop floor and packed dirt in there, performs probably about as bad as the over-greased one. And, and I always, like, I started showing it now to as many people as I can because it's just something where people, like, the light flicks on in their head and they're like, wow, that's, you know, that's really insightful. And it's, I mean, it's a it's a great video. Yeah, I, I, I would definitely like to get my hands on that video. I have so many people that would need to see that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll see if I can transfer it over to you. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> awesome. So let, let's get back into it a little bit. And so what what are kind of some things that you typically see that mistakes that people make in their lubrication programs? Oh my gosh. <clears throat> like I said, it starts with storage. It starts with storage. Um, I see them store it improperly, store the lubricants improperly. They have them out in the rain and and their you know drums of transformer oils that should never be there because the water's gonna get into it and some of these transformer oils they um 
their sensitivity to light is also particularly important. So it starts with storage. And uh, once I realize that their storage is not where it's supposed to be, I know that they're going to have problems in the lubrication program because you're already you're starting off with contaminated lubricants before it even gets into the equipment. So we need to address that. That's the first thing that has to be addressed. So one of the major gaps would be just storage and handling, using dirty dispensers. Oh my God, the things that I've seen. <laughs> um, using dirty dispensers. And when I don't think that they fully understand that when they use these types of dirty equipment or have the lubricants in the wrong storage area, that they actually push downtime into their schedule. They're just insisting it into their schedule and they're saying, okay, this equipment is going to have to give up sometime or another. <laughs> so it, it really adds up. And if they address that storage issue, that's one of their major, major, major gaps. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. Like it, well, another thing that people don't understand is even like new lubricants, not clean. Definitely, definitely not. <laughs> and so they kind of trust it. They're like, well, we just take it from the barrel and put it right in and you go, eh, it's, it's not going to be good enough for at least sensitive equipment, like hydraulic units or turbines, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Another thing I wanted to kind of tell people about in, in this one is not necessarily not using filtration at all, because I think a lot of sites now, they either have online filtration with a lot of units or they've kind of gotten enough training that they bought a filter cart. But one thing is using the wrong filtration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> So what I mean by that is either the wrong size of filter, like every once in a while, I'll inspect an online filter on a hydraulic unit and the filter will be a 30 micron size filter. And that's probably, you know, 10 times bigger than what you should be using. Like you should be using something like three microns. And sometimes when you ask why, they go, well, we tried a smaller filter, but it plugged too quickly. And yeah, and, and, the, and the reason for that, right, is like the oil's too dirty to begin with. So there's this, that should illustrate a question to you immediately instead of, you know, just sizing up your filter. Another thing I, I wanted to talk on here is a lot of sites, they, they take oil samples but they have no process for looking at the results. So they get, a, they get an oil sample, they take it, it, go, it comes to you know, fluid life, we send them the oil sample results and then nobody looks at them. So it kind of is something that, that, that I don't like because you've kind of wasted whatever the 20, 30, $40 on the sample. And the other thing that you've wasted is you've wasted your mechanics or lube specialist time. So if someone wants to start building a good lubrication program, where do you, like, how do you recommend they start? Uh, unfortunately, 
we don't have a cookie cutter answer for this one. And uh, I think it's because each plant is so dynamically different. So the first thing I would have to do is assess assess their needs. They first of all they need to understand uh, why they would want to have a good lubrication program. Is it that they're doing it for a particular certification, or is it that they just generally want to improve their reliability? So we need to understand what direction they want to head into. While we would definitely want to take them in the best direction, we have to know what's driving the process, first of all. So to start with a good lubrication program, I would start in the stores area, definitely the stores area, and possibly have that you know segmented into different sections so that we have some sort of color coding with different types of oils, different types of dispensers. And then it starts after you put things in place like that, you have to do some sort of training. Train your staff so that they understand why you've changed certain things or why you've done things in a particular way. And once you start training them, you start getting them involved in the process and get them to take some sort of ownership on the process. Because if they have no ownership of the process, they're just gonna look at it as, okay, this is something new being implemented by management. We have to just follow with this. And they're not as passionate about it as compared to when they actually have part of the process or they actually are involved in doing certain things or doing some of the changes. So it depends on your organization's willingness to change. I know that is the struggle point for a lot of people. They they have that challenge with you know change and they're against change, but certain times they just need to change <laughs> and they need to actually start with that good lubrication program because your lubrication is actually the base of what you start to do with your equipment reliability. If you don't have that right, things just start going wrong and they start going downhill quickly. <laughs> so definitely um, start with stores, do some training with your staff, get them involved. Once you have them involved and they understand the reasons for certain procedures or certain measures that you've put into place, then they start taking it as part of their culture and start building it into their culture. So that's how I would start with that. Yeah, I think from what I see, some of the things that people do incorrectly is they jump in with, you know, taking oil samples and trying to do oil drain extension projects. And they haven't dealt with the kind of lubrication fundamentals, which is just, you know, are you putting the right lubricant in the machine? Mm -hmm. Are you filtering it when you get it? Are you making sure that you know, we always talk about that. It was like right lubricant, right time, right place, and right quantity. Mm -hmm. Like the basics. It's the same thing. I like same thing in reliability. I talk about it as well. It's just like if we can do precision maintenance, like if when we install a motor, if we're installing it and it's aligned and everything, you know, it's installed the correct way and our storeroom's in order where you know we didn't break it before we put it in 
we're actually going to increase reliability a lot more than if we buy, you know, the IIoT sensors and we start doing, you know, artificial intelligence in the cloud kind of stuff. I agree. <laughs> so when we when we talk about taking oil samples, um, we talk about, you know, taking representative samples, taking them from a location that's easy and safe. So where do you sit on, you know, do they need fittings? Where should people take samples from that kind of, you know, that position? Well, I think um, you have to assess. You have to understand uh, what equipment you're looking at, first of all. And is it a critical equipment? Is it a non-critical equipment? What exactly, what is the purpose of taking the tests from this equipment? Do you need this regularly or not? And then if it is something that you have to get routinely, then I would suggest you have some sort of a fitting for it so that it's easier for your guys to get your sample, easier for them to take it because they're going to be out there a lot and they're going to be spending a lot of time with that. So I'd prefer that they have something in place that it's very easy to get a sample from rather than you go with the whole, you know, they have to take off certain parts of the equipment to get in, they have to shut down the equipment. So it really depends on how often you're going to be doing the sampling and when do you need it most critically and just training your guys on it. So definitely I would always try to let them be as safe as possible because <laughs> that's critical. But if it is that it's a routine sample, then just make it easy. Get the taps, get the um, correct fittings and let it be easy for them to take because you don't want that they actually have to be burdened with the task of taking an oil sample or that's the way that they see it. If they know that it's easy to do, then it's easier to get them out there and get that sample <laughs> and get them back on the inside. But if it is that it's a sample that you take once a year, while it's nice to have fittings for that as well, it may not be necessary. So I would place more emphasis on getting the fittings or getting the right accessories for the higher frequency samples. Because those are the ones that your guys are on all the time. Yeah, absolutely. I got, I got two good examples for this one. So one time I was at a plant and they had these two, you know, two pumps that were, you know, they run in parallel. So only one of them's running at the same time. And they, the, the return lines for those come from, uh, from the second story. So they come down into, into the room and they the elbow for the return line was maybe it's got to be probably 10 to 10 to 15 feet in the air and you look up there and there's there's a mini mess or a b-series fitting on the elbow probably you know 10 to 10 to 15 feet in the air and you go well are you guys sampling i point up there it's like you guys sample from up there and the guy's like yep and i was like well so how do you how do you do that and he's like well there's a ladder and we started looking around for the ladder. We couldn't find the ladder. 
And so either the guy is standing on the pump taking the sample or the sample is just like coming from new oil or it's not happening. And so it was like one of those things where it's like, yeah, I get you. You went to a training course and you heard, you know, return line on an elbow is the best spot. But like to me, safety and ease, those things are the like number one and number two. Yes. The other one I wanted to kind of talk about a little bit was the the fittings themselves. Like I go out and I I you know fittings is part of the audit that we do. But I'm a huge fan of just taps or just regular ball valves where you can just turn the knob and the oil comes out. Just because it's so easy and there's like literally no training required. Like everybody knows how to turn a tap on and turn it off. Everybody should know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if you're if if kids can do it in a faucet with water, they should be able to do it with oil, right? They should. They should. I know strange things happen. Strange things happen. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, like. I, I have gotten feedback a few times from customers where they're using one of the, you know, the check valves and they didn't have the probe or they weren't using the probe. And so the oil wasn't coming out properly. And that's just something where it's like with a regular ball valve, that's never going to happen. It's just going to be something that everybody, they turn it on, oil comes out. Great. So that that's another thing. If you're listening out there and you're like, I'm confused about these fittings or yeah, like they're good in a sense that yes, they will keep your uh, sample a little bit cleaner um, in some of the, obviously in a high pressure line situation, you're going to need a fitting because of safety. Uh, but if you can just put on regular valves, they're going to be easy and your people are going to be a little bit happier than fiddling around with, either the vacuum pumps or the tubing. Yeah, because once it's easy for them, they will want to do it. And that, that's the whole point of it, getting them involved and getting them to be part of the process so that sometimes when they get the sample, what I advise as well is that once the results return, you discuss the results with them so that they realize the value that they've brought to the table. Oh, absolutely. That's, that's, that's a really good tip actually for people because otherwise it's like, you know, you're, you take the sample and the results, you never hear anything. Yes. <laughs> so one thing I wanted to ask you, Sonia, was how often should people be sampling their equipment? Oh, that depends. That definitely depends. Uh, if you're looking at an industrial complex, I would obviously, I will categorize it into three main categories. Um, critical equipment, uh, semi-critical equipment, and then non-critical equipment. Uh, with your critical equipment, those are the ones that can actually shut down your plant if they're not fully operational. So for those, I would definitely want at least monthly samples and just the basic stuff on them. Because if we're looking at uh, turbines or in a power plant, 
the testing for that can get pretty expensive. <laughs> so uh, definitely on critical equipment, I would want monthly basic routine reports on those. For the semi-critical, I can go like quarterly or even um, by bi-monthly or something like that. And the non-critical, I would still probably do that at quarterly or semi-annually, but just the basics. And perhaps depending on the results, because it's always dependent on your results, uh, then you decide if you need to increase your frequency or decrease your frequency. And if you start seeing um, metals and certain things, contaminants coming into your monthly samples, then you may want to probably do like another test, uh, oxidation test, or maybe an RPVOT or something like that for your turbines. But it really depends on your monthly samples. If you can pick up, if you start seeing your trends going in a particular direction, then if you need specialty testing, then I would say go for it. Uh, I know there are some clients that want to do everything, <laughs> but it may not be as cost effective in doing the full, full range of tests when the full range could be done maybe quarterly or semi-annually. So it, it depends on your type of equipment. It's really dependent on your equipment. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's, I mean, it, yeah, there's no, there's no point getting, you know, the full turbine test package on a small gearbox or anything like that. Um, definitely, like you said, the key word here and the key word to me is trending. And that's why, you know, we talk about, you know, taking the sample from the same location and ideally the same way each time. It's just, it, it helps you set a trend. Like I'm a, I'm also kind of a fan of like a lot of people, they talk about, oh, well, you know, we could drill and tap a point on this, you know, on this line. And it like, first off, it probably will never happen. But second of all, you might do more damage to your equipment than is worth it. Yeah. And so I, I think, more often than a lot of people, I will recommend just sampling out of the drain just because of practicality. Mm -hmm. and, and the reason I do it is I just go, well, one, it's easy. Two, it's just something that if you have a guy doing it, he's going to do it the same way each time. And, and to me, that's more important than, you know, the perfect sample, the perfect sample location and fitting and all that stuff. Yeah, because you're, you're just trying to get, you're trying to trend. And the best way to trend is to have as minimal differences as possible when you're taking a sample. So I completely agree with you there on that one. Yeah, and, and I mean, in terms of testing, like what testing should people be getting for non-critical equipment, something you may even consider is why, why tests at all. Um, I did go to a few sites this year and they had some they had some equipment on there and it maybe held a liter of oil. And I I I would ask them I said like okay so this one comes back with high iron what are you going to do about it? And the answer you know it's it's nothing. So 
then why are you testing it? Like you have spares in the storeroom. Um, you know, like your fail, if it fails, you just go out and get another one within two hours, you're back at running. Like, is this really worth it? Oh yeah. Uh, so though, you know, that's one thing definitely like if you're getting hydraulics or turbines, something that should be part of your regular, like monthly sample is gotta be particle counts. Like I know for us, it's, it's a little, it's, it's higher than the most basic package but it's definitely something that you just, you need. Yeah, because knowing the cleanliness of your oil, especially for your hydraulics and turbines, is critical because those are precision applications. And then they have a lot of servo valves and clearances for those are very, very small. So knowing that your oil is clean and that you have some some level of cleanliness in there that is a peace of mind that you would just need to have so definitely i agree with the particle count for those those types of tests yeah and, and particle counts interesting right because if you look at your wear metals on your uh, oil analysis results typically they're done using like a spectroscopy method which measures sizes between like, you know, around zero to five, six, seven microns in size. And your, your isoparticle counts, they're looking at particles. It's like four microns, six microns and 14 microns and greater. And so they may not correlate between each other. And so it's something to just be aware of. Like I get this question a lot is, you know, is like, well, I got a high particle count, but my wear metals are all low. Like, what's going on? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh, yeah. And then um, what they need to know as well is that when you get your isoparticle counts, the values that you see um, uh, may not necessarily be the amount of particles in there. They're actually related to a range. So, like, if you have a 12... Um, 18, 21, that does not necessarily mean only 12 particles. It actually references a huge range. And I think a lot of people get confused with that. They're not uh, informed that the value that they get on the actual reading relates to another range. So that's one thing that I try to tell them as well. <laughs> yeah, my, my customers don't have that problem just because we, we also list the, the part of the like raw counts next to the, to the ISO code. But one thing that, that I get is you can go from a, like, let's say you're going from a 18 ISO code to a 19 on the range. It's, it's as little as two particles difference and can be as great as four times, like just shy of four times. Right. Mm -hmm. So that that's the thing that people don't necessarily understand is if you go from the bottom of the of an 18 to the top of an 18, it's roughly a two times greater jump. So you can have a huge jump and still be within one one ISO code. Yes, yes, that is true. That is quite true. <laughs> um, I guess I guess one last thing, Sonia, is. Do you have any thoughts on 
like on-site testing capabilities or when someone takes a sample, like what should they do before they send it to the lab? Oh, uh, before they send it to the lab, uh, what I like to do or what I try to get my customers to do is have a log of the samples that they're going to send off. So have the equipment, the hours, the usual stuff that you'd have on your tab for all samples, but also try and include a time. And if you have more than one person that would take the sample, include who actually took the sample and where it was stored. It had to be stored before being sent to the lab. So that helps in terms of knowing your consistency levels and like sometimes when they take a sample and they can actually physically see uh, the separation between oil and water or fuel and water or just a bunch of things floating around on the inside of the sample, they should take those things into consideration. Because <laughs> definitely if you see things like that, you know something is wrong. So rather than, yeah, <laughs> rather than wait to get back the results, let's try and work on a solution in the interim. Oh yeah, for sure. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I have a box of those on my, on my desk and I'm going to, I'm going to post some pictures on my LinkedIn um, over the next week or so with a few of them. It's, it's one of my most, uh, every time I give a training seminar, I, I tell people this is like, Roughly, it takes probably, I would say, about a week or so for samples to come from wherever site they are until they get to us and then the testing's done and, you know, all that stuff. It's, you know, it's going to be at least like two or three days, maybe five days. And if you pull a sample and you see, you know, chunks of metal floating around or you see, um, you know, coolant floating, it this stuff is is actionable immediately yeah and so it's it's absolutely just something that you know you just got to do and and a lot of the maintenance guys or the lube guys that take samples they will like make a note of it and they'll say you know but you actually have to you know push it through your maintenance department and get action moving yes (laughs) so Sonia, you know, thanks for coming back on and and kind of nerding out a little bit on lubrication. That's not a problem. <laughs> My pleasure. And so, if anyone wants to kind of reach out to you um, and find more information on strategic reliability solutions, where can they find that? Well, they can check me on LinkedIn. I'm there like all the time. And they just need to look for my name, uh, Sanya Matura. And if they want to check out my website, they can go to strategicreliabilitysolutions.com. And we have a bunch of information there. Uh, Our training calendar, all of our different things that we're doing right now, our media page, and just some really good information that they can find out about us. So they can just check us on LinkedIn or check our website out anytime they want to. Perfect. Yeah. And and if anyone's listening, just check the podcast notes. I'll have both of those links in there. So feel free to connect with Sonia or me and check out Strategic Reliability Solutions. Um, 
Sonia, are you going to be at any conferences coming up or anything like that? Um, not that I know of yet, actually. <laughs> Nothing else for the rest of the year. Well, we're just planning to help our customers within the region this for the end of the year because I know we're already in September. Oh, my gosh. Uh, so the end of the year is coming up pretty quickly. Maybe next year, but I know I'll definitely let you know wherever I'll be at. <laughs> Perfect. So, yeah, and, and listening, um, and you like the deep dive on lubrication, and you maybe you want to hear more uh, because typically, you know, I could talk lubrication. Well, usually I talk about forty hours in a week of lubrication. Um, just reach out and and hit me up and hit Sonia up on LinkedIn, and we'll, we'll definitely come back on and and hash out some more stuff because we we barely scratched the surface. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. So for me, um, plugs coming up. Follow the podcast, Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn. Follow me on LinkedIn. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform. And that's pretty much it for me. 